So Jacob sends me this private message on Facebook, and I again I haven't I haven't talked to this guy uh, except for an occasional like on a status or a blurb in three years. And his, his question, rather his post, is, is you know, he asked me this almost verbatim. It was, "Hi Jonathan, this is going to sound weird, but how do you interpret Paul?" End quote. Uh, so like out of the random or out of the blue, very random. Uh, so a series of Facebook messages back and forth. He has, I guess, observed my posts, observed my Twitter feed or whatnot, and gets the sense that I'm Old Testament-ish <laughs> as to what, what that really means. Um, uh, so one caveat is I do intend to send Jacob a link to this uh, teaching tonight, so I'm going to be addressing him as much as possible. And I actually realized I have quite a lot of followers from Canada and Romania on my blog. <laughs> so to those people, here's a shout out. Um, so anyways, uh, so now that everyone's here, I, I, I did want to read, this is kind of the culmination of, of what my friend Jacob um, wrote to me last. Uh, turns out he is a pretty avid blogger. He has a lot of people that follow him. And where he is in school at right now, he has, he knows people that emphatically believe that people like us are in a cult. Seriously, that we deny Yeshua, trample on the blood, and are, you know, are just occultish um, in our approach. And I, it's not like I haven't seen that before, but Jacob, and this is amazing, is going to bat for us in the sense that he is writing a blog post for, uh, for his followers to prove to them that Messianic Judaism is not a cult. And he wants to interview myself uh, as the placeholder for Messianic Judaism to establish with these people that emphatically think we are a cult that that is not the case. And in doing so, he has presented 10 questions that he wants me to answer, um, and, and he will uh, present those on his blog for his followers. Um, these are the said 10 questions. The first one, when, act, when asked about your religious affiliation or belief, how do you label yourself? What does that term indicate in your thinking about your faith? Question two, compared to world religions, what are distinctive features of your faith, not differentiating among denominational or regional lines? Question three, who is God? How does he reveal himself? Question four, what do you think about historic Christian confessions of faith? That is, the, uh, the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, and the Chalcedon Definition. I didn't even know what the last one was. <laughs> Question five, what is the Bible? Where does it come from? And what level of authority does it have in your tradition? Question six, there are, particular are there particular approaches or methods that you employ in interpreting the biblical text? Question seven, the Apostle Paul's writings make up a good deal of the Christian New Testament. Who was Paul? How important are his writings for Christianity? And what factors do we need to consider when reading and interpreting the Pauline letters? Phenomenal question. Question eight. Paul talks a lot about the law in his letters, especially those to the churches in Galatia and Rome. What is the law that Paul is referring to? How are we to understand his writings concerning the law in our present context? Question nine. How do you read and understand the Hebrew Bible, that is the Christian Old Testament? What types of considerations do you employ when reading and interpreting the Hebrew Bible? What is the Torah? How do you use and apply the Torah? And lastly, 
how do you read uh, and apply dietary laws, especially in light of uh, passages such as Romans 14? Those are the questions. <laughs> and Ten each, bullet points, really about five that's questions. That's a lot. Five questions there. <laughs> so needless to say, this is going to be a big picture theme tonight. <laughs> we could, I mean, there's, a cl- really, there's a, a setup of 10 classes, so go ahead and I'm going to have a sign-up sheet. <laughs> but the first five are really remedial points. To, to me, this is where Jacob is, is going to reassure his friends that emphatically Billy Burkle that we do worship the same God, we do have the same scripture, and we're not as crazy as we appear. Um, at least that's I, what I hope to establish tonight. Or so, <laughs> so um, you know, the caveat is I have not had a chance to go through this presentation once at all. I uh, had a, a funny story about I had set aside time to do this today, and instead I had to convince a friend of mine who is considering uh, becoming um, an atheist today. So again, it's funny. When you keep the Torah, God will bring those people in the midst of your life. So I do think that that was used my time better than as opposed to preparing for this class. So um, <laughs> let's continue. I was going to break the ice with a funny comic. Like ready for this? Now his first question, which I think is is a question I don't really like. How do you label yourself? Labels are important, and as humans, we tend to classify things. That's our first inclination is to categorize. Um, But I think sometimes that's to our detriment because we spend more time classifying than understanding sometimes. And uh, labels to me aren't that important. It's more, and I think for everyone in here would agree, uh, it's what what happens that's important regardless of what you call it. Um, I'll I'll go ahead and start here because this was a big question for my family. I don't know how it is with everyone else in our community, but um, my family ended up talking to a lot of Jewish people. And uh, the term messianic is verboten. I mean, it just, I mean, it, it's yeah. bad. Yeah. It's missionary. It's, we want to turn you into something else because what God made you isn't good enough and you need to turn into something like us. So yeah. messianic didn't work. Right. Um, but as you pointed out, labels are shouldn't matter, but they're important because yeah. um, I'm reminded of a class that um, Tim Haig began by saying words have weight, they have meaning, they have importance, mm-hmm. um, and, and we need to recognize that. And, and it was happening in our lives um, if I called myself a Christian, it meant that I followed along the party line, Republican, right? I'm going this way, and therefore I believe Jesus is the Messiah. The New Testament is all that counts. The Old Testament's done away with. The law was a sham, you know, yada, yada, yada. And we don't believe that. So Christianity kind of went in the tank as well as Messianic. And uh, a young man I met, Fiend. Fiend. Uh, a young man I met um, who has impressed me greatly uh, said Got it. <laughs> 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 said uh, when asked if he was Jewish he said well no I'm, I'm Jew-ish 
But, uh, wait, I think that was you. Yeah. Sounds um, I'd love to meet that guy. Yeah, he's a good <laughs> man. I love you, go. Um, so, so, so the, I label myself differently depending on who I'm speaking with. I mean, always. And, and, and that's really my point here, is that, for, and I just threw up some terms that everyone says, but are subjective to different people you're talking exactly. to. Exactly. Or, um, and the term messianic is the first one I threw up here. Uh, and by the way, Jacob, whoever's listening online, please uh, find the PowerPoints on this on my blog, or else you'll be lost. So the first name I have is Messianic. And again, like you said, I don't like the term Messianic because it doesn't it really doesn't mean that much. Orthodox Jews who don't believe in Yeshua call themselves Messianic. Yes, sir. However, Messianic actually works really good with people in a Christian community. It does. So Entirely. it explains where we are. It, it explains where right. we are, and it helps establish some rapport. Right. Hebrew roots, right. same kind of thing. Here's one that doesn't work if you're talking to Orthodox Jews: Torah observant. They'll laugh at you if you call yourself Torah observant. You're lying to them because yeah. their definition of Torah is different than yours. Yeah. If you look at them in the eyes and say, "I'm Torah observant." You're looking at someone who looks very different than you, who acts very different than you, and they call themselves Torah observant. So by, uh, you should realize off the bat, two different definitions. Don't use it. Absolutely. Torah submissive is another word I've heard. I like that. Um, because even if there's things in the Torah that I'm not doing right now, out of ignorance, um, I will submit, submit myself to them. You get a buy. Exactly. Closer to the truth, I, I thought I took that out. Really, I thought I took that out. <laughs> Torah Gentile is another term that we use in amongst our community, and I think exclusively. I haven't heard this used elsewhere. But I think it's good. It identifies the object that, uh, that separates us from the church, that is really the Torah, and it identifies that object, or rather that characteristic that differentiates us from Judaism, which is the Gentile heritage. Separates us from church practice. Church practice. It's important that, especially when you're talking to this gentleman, that you don't want to even imply that you're separating yourself from the church. Thank you. We are the church. We are the church. That's correct. To our Gentile, though, doesn't really give any um, uh, weight to Messiah. It doesn't really say that you have anything to do with Messiah. Although there ain't any Torah Gentiles that. Outside of that, right? <laughs> <laughs> but but no, the, I'm but the other folks don't know that. That's yeah, true. Of course, I would argue right. anything Torah related, by definition, is Messiah related. We could argue that. Now, the, I understand. <laughs> but but who might knows not understand it that right. way? Right. Exactly. You got to explain all this right. stuff. Yeah. Right. You a Yeah. I was wondering, what about Torah pursuant? I've heard that one. Pursuant is good. Um, I, it, it gives the the impression of running the race, right? Pursuing something. Mm-hmm. I do think it is within our ability to to arrive. I mean, there is such thing as being blameless according to the law. Sure, I'm obviously not there yet, um, but yeah, I, I think that's the way of putting it. That brings up a good point because the man that said that actually had multiple definitions for himself as well. That's right. Yeah, because he said to the Jew, Jew. I am Jewish. Jew. To the Gentile, I am. As a Gentile. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Alrighty, so. Oh, yes, sir. I found this one to be effective for Christians. And it's, I think there's another movement that's called this, but they don't know about it, so I just use this all the time. Jews for Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Explains it in two words, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, with the 
With the other people that didn't like Messianic, they'll really not like Jews. I've actually, I've actually been point blank asked by a Jew, are you Jews for Jesus? And I've flat out said no. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you're right with Christians. It, it, it works really well. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of like follower of Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah. Let's not get too ahead of ourselves. Oh, man. Did you read or something? I've seen the slides. I I don't think I I shared what I normally say before. What what I normally say when asked by a believer, what are you? And I tell them, well, we practice Judaism. That's what I do. We practice Judaism, but we believe in Messiah. And I think that works no matter whether I'm talking to an atheist, a Christian, or a Jew. And I don't think any of them are offended, and I think all of them understand. And they'll all ask questions. And, and the questions just start rolling. That's exactly right. And, and that's exactly where I was going to conclude that. So, and, actually, actually, and actually, but the, one of the important points of that is not just not just the definition. It's actually it 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 puts the correct character on the way we not just the way we view ourselves because we don't have a set of beliefs. Right. You know, that's Christianity has a set of beliefs. Right. And I know we're getting ahead of the questions here, but we don't have a set of beliefs, as it were. Certainly, we all believe certain things, but right. we don't have a list, and here's the list, and do you fill the list? Right. We practice something. We do things. Right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So, point. more or less, you're right. I, and, and thank you for bringing those two together. I do practice Judaism, but I acknowledge and worship Yeshua as Messiah. Uh, so, because of that, it really brings in line the next question, which was... Compared to world religions, what are the distinctive features of your faith not differentiating along denominational or regional lines? And Jacob, I hope you understand. I'm not. I assume there's only two world religions that we actually uh, concur with at all, and that's Judaism and Christianity. So those are the two I'm focusing on, obviously. Uh, so I was just going to hash out Baha'i. what makes us different from yeah. Baha'i yeah, Buddhism or Islam. Scientology. Some of us maybe. <laughs> Very Christian. <laughs> so, what makes us different? What makes us different than Judaism? Uh, off, off the bat, what's the first? We believe in Yeshua. We, we recognize Yeshua. That's obviously the biggest and the most uh, noteworthy. The, the most no, noteworthy. You, know, you probably need to define Judaism as a as a big group, just like Christianity is a big group, because they didn't want denominations. Because I would argue, I'm Judaism, <laughs> and I recognize Yeshua. Exactly. So it's the largest group of Judaism. Right. right. Mainstream. Thank you. And Mainstream. 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 Normative. And I think it's important um, to, to recognize that we can't say we recognize Messiah, because... I was compared here in this room, in my home, by an Orthodox Jewish rabbi who said I was just like Chabad because they've got a man they say is the Messiah and he will return, and you have a man who you say is Messiah and he will return. And he's exactly right. There's just one difference. My Messiah is God. (laughs) <laughs> Their Messiah is not. I mean, we we have more than just a Rebbe. 
is, is, is a way to think of it. Our Rebbe is both Mashiach and an extension of Hashem. Uh, and, and again, mainstream Judaism doesn't have that. So that, sure. that is what makes us different. That's also, good. this one uh, is kind of self-evident, but again, it's important for our, our identity. We are Goyish in that regard. In, in that sense, you could almost argue that's the biggest difference because Yeshua, yeah. as, as you pointed out, it's, it's really all, especially if you explain what we think of Yeshua, it's almost down to the name yeah. more so than anything. The biggest issue is the deity of Messiah. Right. That's a that's a big one, right. and the fact that we're not Jews yeah. and don't believe we have to convert to Judaism. That's right, right. And, and and that's the big one. And, and, and Jacob, I hope you understand this: that we are not uh, Jewish J- Jewish wannabes. Uh, that's not why we do what we do, um, and that's probably one of the the hardest things for our Jewish actually Jewish brothers to grasp is that we're practicing Judaism, but none of us were raised in it. And tradition, and you know, technically, that's just, that doesn't happen most of the time. <laughs> right. Nor, nor do any of us desire to convert to Judaism. Indeed. Right. Next, uh, this is also important. We have the Brit Chaysha, the New Testament, whatever you want to call it, the, apos- the apostolic scriptures, the Nazarene codicil. Uh, <laughs> There's actually a group that uses that term. Yeah. The Bashida. That is important in itself. Some of the most powerful revelation we have that Judaism doesn't have, by and large. Next, um, we're not 100% on the oral Torah. And this is kind of a touchy subject because I'm just speaking for myself. I'm not 100% on the Torah, on, on the oral Torah. Even though there are some, I have friends of mine that are in the same walk, the same faith I am, that are more so and, uh, submissive, if you will, to the oral Torah. But I will just, I don't want to spend too much time here because this is a class in and of itself. I will say I am currently reading, going through the Talmud cycle, the oral Torah, and I do see it as a... Um, Something that it's it's a place you have to go eventually uh, if you don't want to make up stuff on your own. It's a valuable resource. It's a valuable resource, um, and I, I think that's that's all I really say. But mainstream Orthodox Judaism will put the Oral Torah um, on the same uh, pedestal as the Written Torah, and there's le- in terms of practice, right? In terms of practice, and there's legitimate reasons that that they do so, but I, which I don't have necessarily a problem with. My issue is I'm still ignorant on the oral Torah. I cannot have a valid opinion either way because I do not know the oral Torah. Uh, and I'm trying to fix that so I can make an educated opinion. Uh, but as of now, um, I, I will err on the side of caution and say that the written Torah, the written scriptures, uh, is what the Messianic Jewish movement, that's what I'm going to call it for now, accepts broadly. And I think that's, that, that, that is all needs to be said. Uh, and then last, and this is actually a big one, we are a couple bagels short of an egg amongst the Jewish community. That's supposed to be a new thing. We're not really accepted. Uh, we're, we're a couple bagels short of an egg. We're, we're the ugly brother, the ugly stepbrother. Uh, we don't really fit in, and rightly so, I think. I think we fit in quite easily in conservative Judaism. Mm-hmm. Actually, we do. I, th- I think, I, at least my own uh, expression of faith, has shown that Orthodox Judaism is a one-off, man-by-man basis. Okay. If they get to know the person, 
they can deal with us. Right. Generically, it's a little difficult. Right. I find the same thing on the reform side. Right. I come off as Orthodox when I talk to Reform mm-hmm. Jews. Uh, they they assume I'm Jewish to start off. Right. When they find out I'm a Gentile, all bets are off, and they're just like, "What what are you doing?" Right. And, and, and that's the case for almost everyone in this room. For Messianic Judaism, by and large, sadly, that's not the case. Because sadly, Messianic Judaism, by and large, doesn't have the same opinion as I do. And let me make that clear to my friend Jacob as a caveat that Messianic Judaism comes in all different shapes and sizes. There is no cookie-cutter symbol. But by and large, uh, we're still a bagel short of an own egg. We're, we're not accepted. Um, so now in Christianity, what makes us different? And I actually really thought I took this one out, too. Uh, we, drink <laughs> we, we drink wine. Catholics drink wine. Catholics, yeah. that's right. They so do Presbyterians. Yeah, but we don't apologize for it. <laughs> we think the Bible says we should. Hey, right. Hear those two quotes, right? <laughs> wine makes the heart of man glad and the heart of God. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. Jacob, if you're Baptist, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't know. But uh, next, if you're Baptist, we're all <laughs> Okay. We follow Torah as best we can. That is the second point that distinguishes us from Christianity for obvious reasons. Um, and by and large, the, the Christian church, of which I mean, we're, we're, we're brothers in, like I said, I, I, we can't distance ourselves from them because we're in the body of Messiah. Uh, but I think they'd be surprised at how much Torah they keep. And I hope that Jacob and all the Canadians and Romanians that are listening can, uh, can, can realize that. Uh, we, we are not as different, really, when it comes down to even our practices. Uh, we, we, may, uh, uh, we, we may focus on what we eat, what day, uh, what day we worship on, but when it comes down to it, issues of morality, issues of justice, of, uh, kindness, of justice and kindness and mercy... The Christian Church and our brothers in the Christian Church are card-carrying supporters of those in ways that put me to shame. So, so it's not a holier than thou. It's just a uh, we. This is the expression that God's led us to. An acknowledgement of it. Of An more. Exactly. Well, and I think this bullet. We follow the Torah as best we can. There's a there's a really key presumption there, and that is that we we hold that the Torah still has relevance. To our daily life, exactly. whereas uh, most of Christianity uh, has, by and large, look, look, looks at the Torah as good Bible stories, yeah. uh, with the exception of the Ten Commandments. You know, it's not really relevant anymore. Um, it was nailed to the cross by Jesus, or you know, whatever you know, kind of whatever uh, metaphor or expression you want to use. So the big presumption is, with this is that we we hold that the Torah, the five books of Moses. Uh, and and all of the quote unquote Old Testament, all of it is still relevant and still applicable to our lives, and will be when he returns. And, and just not not to not to discount that at all because that's exactly right. But also that it's foundational, and that the rest of Scripture is essentially not completely knowable without knowing the Torah. Yes. In other words, it becomes yes. the foundation. It's the glossary right. to know what Scripture says. And, and, and we'll get there as well. Okay. Um, next point, this is a, this is a big one. Sorry. We look towards Chazal. Chazal, Hachmenu, Zipponam, Levracha, our sages of blessed memory, 
It is a, uh, a, a title that's given to Jewish rabbis who did not believe in Yeshua. Who, some, uh, or may have. Some of which. Or may have, that's right, or some that are actually quoted in the New Testament. Uh, Gamaliel is, 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 is an example. Who have who were Torah scholars in their own right, righteous individuals, uh, memorized the entire Torah, almost the entire Old Testament, uh, active recall of any subject you want, righteous people, we look towards their wisdom on interpreting the scriptures, and, it, and most, most importantly on how we live out the scriptures, because the Jewish people, and we'll get into this later, but have accepted the oracles of God, and have given up their lives to guard and preserve them. Who else should we look towards first, primarily, when it comes to how do we keep the commandments of God than to the Jewish people? And we do that by looking at the sages of Judaism, Chazal. Next point, we focus on living like Yeshua. I, I, I don't think I worded that quite uh, articulately, because the Christian church does as well. We focus on not so much the what would Jesus do, but on the what did Yeshua do. Uh, and, and the daily life applications, that's that's that I think is a, a, a good way to sum it. it uh, maybe the best way to say it was ours is a whole lot more specific. Yeah. I think that the what would Jesus do is based on the idea that there are these big broad principles like love thy neighbor that then have to characterize your daily walk and what you do each day can change yeah. based on your your fulfilling of that. Whereas ours we look at it and we say, okay, well Yeshua never ate pork, so I'm gonna cross that one off right away. Every day I'm not gonna eat pork. Indeed. Right. And last point we're a few wafers short of communion. <laughs> we don't quite fit in with the Christian church. We're in the no man's land between Christianity and Judaism. They're both our brothers. We, we would give our lives uh, and give of ourselves to both communities. Uh, and the cool thing, is we, we kind of get the best of both worlds in a certain regard. True. And uh, so... So, so that's, those are the distinctive features of our faith. Yes, sir. Uh, just a, a final on this point. Um, I think you've uh, possibly mistakenly uh, hit on one of the reasons why we're all sitting here. I mean, there's almost 20 men sitting in this room, and, and we do on a weekly basis right. to, to, to spur each other on to godliness and obedience. Um, but you mentioned communion. And to me... It's the quintessential representation of why we're here. Communion is, is the distilling of a night-long discussion of God's power and redemptive work in the lives of His people, which He chose and redeemed with an outstretched hand. A long and, and torturous meal filled with symbolism about Messiah and His redemptive work. And we've distilled it down in the Christian church to communion being a shot glass of grape juice and a piece of plastic wafer. Whereas my family now, instead of celebrating communion, is celebrating a rich and wonderful meal filled with hours of scripture and tall tales and, 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 well, drinking some wine. And, <laughs> and waiting and looking forward to Elijah. And full size. Being, yes, that's right. Uh, Elijah being there and, and being that forerunner of Messiah. Um, to me, communion is the example yeah. of, of, of the uh, uh, 
what do you, what do you call it? the emaciated right. representation of what the Christian church has and the longing that many we know in the visible church have for a more robust representation of their faith. And the Seder on Pesach, on Erev Pesach, is, is, is the answer. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, Rabbi Yosef, I mean, that, that, is, that is a good way to put it. I mean, I know our family, I mean, the, the Seder Pesach was instrumental in us coming into this faith. And I, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a good way starting. to put the bow on. That's really good. So the third question, this one is, um, I, I really don't like this one either. Who is God? <laughs> How is he revealed? I mean, it's not that I don't like the question. I don't like the fact that you can't answer the question. It's really... Explain I mean, God and give three examples. Exactly. God? And, and you have five minutes. Um, <laughs> suffice it to say, one does not simply define HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One, blessed is He, the creator of the universe, is not definable. Um, so that's really all I'm going to say. But I can't leave you hanging there because those that believe we are a cult... This is really what it kind of hangs on us. Who do we worship? Uh, the God of the Old Testament, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, the God of the New Testament. He's the same, in case you haven't realized. Uh, that is the God we associate ourselves in when we congregate. Uh, we worship him. The only thing I can say about who he is... Oh, yes, sir. No, just crushing. That was not a... That was not a bid. I just, uh, what you just said, I think that's one of the big differences between Christianity mm-hmm. and us, is that I, I think they inadvertently think that God does change, right. or did change, yeah. um, or at least he changes his mind. W- wouldn't it, right. Maybe he wouldn't admit it, but act like it. Right. They, right. they act like <laughs> things he said don't matter anymore so indeed sort of a big deal right and, and maybe that's and I, I, sh- I should have put that in there the things I didn't catch up on is God is a chad is one mm. I think that's one of the few things you can point to with absolute certainty and know and the next is more uh, categorical he is our father our king Avinu uh, Malkinu and, uh, and everything that that fits into those categories <clears throat> as well and I think Peter had a good point we believe that God doesn't change his mind. Uh, he, God says about himself in the book of Micah, I change not. Not like a man. I'm, exactly. In the book of Numbers, I am not a man that I should lie, or son of a man that should change my mind. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Uh, there is no... Yesterday, today, and forever. And, and forever, indeed. So, I did put one thing down here, and this kind of leads us to the next one. Uh, the 13 like principles. Shalashah Ikarim. Um, Jacob, and for those listening from afar... One of Chazal, one of the Jewish uh, Jewish sages that we revere, uh, don't always agree with, but we do revere, uh, by the name of Rabbi um, Moshe ben Maimon, commonly referred to as Maimonides, or the Rambam, uh, in the Middle Ages, and the country of Egypt, came up with some 13 principles of Jewish faith. This is about as creedish as Judaism gets. Um, but the first five of those, I think, do a good job of summing what we do know about God. But he is the creator. He is entirely unique. There is none like his uniqueness. He, is, uh, he, he has, um, he, he will reign forever. He has reigned, and he will, he reigns now, and he will always reign for eternity. Things that I think can articulate as best as I can without trying to make up my own list. 
that's as kind of as much as I can really say, and uh, we might we might come back to those. But really, uh, as far as how God reveals Himself, Hashem, that is God, reveals Himself primarily through the Scriptures, the Ruach Hakodesh, that is the Holy Spirit, and through the history of God's people. <clears throat> history is a way God is prophecy. I, I believe. And I think God uses that. Yes, sir. Um, I've, I've got to disagree with your paragraph. Um, yeah. Based I, on scripture, I don't disagree. Yeah, based on scripture, I don't disagree with anything you wrote. Uh -huh. But I think Hashem reveals Himself primarily through His Son Yeshua Hamashiach, okay. and the scriptures, the Ruach Hakodesh, and through the history of God's people. I agree. And actually, I was I would have answered the first question with the answer to the second question: Who is God? I would have said that God is as he reveals himself in the scriptures. Because I think that that's one of the mistakes oftentimes yeah. in creedal we Christianity is an effort to put God into a box right. to try and make sure we all agree as to yeah. who he yeah. is. After we draw the box. But the, and, and the biggest, and I think the most classic example of that is one of the big disagreements is of course the issue of the Trinity. Yeah. And okay, how does that all function? And we try to have this little, you know, egg and it's three parts in yeah. one and Water all this, and... you know, whatever we do. The reality is that the scriptures don't define it and we simply know that God is Yeshua is God God the Father is God and it is one and that's that's good enough for me that's right. so that my answer is who is God is actually how he's revealed I believe he's revealed in the scriptures period um, one, one of the things also and I appreciate the 13 principles but we, we recognize that the Rambam actually went out on a limb but he did it that's true. because the definition of, of who God is is in the Hebrew way of seeing things is the same as we define anything. It's by what, what is revealed by action. Right. And without action, we cannot know. And so the only way that we know what who God is is by the action that he has accomplished in some way. Yeah. And sometimes it's writing in scripture that he is unknowable. Right. You know, there's no action there, but he wrote that, so he's not he's unknowable. Yeah. But other times it's just like we say, creator. And that's actually the top of the list. He's creator. <laughs> Sir. Yeah, I would just just to add to this this idea of who is God, and particularly when it comes to how we explain the nature of God. And you know, it's already been stated. You know, try to explain the nature of God it, by definition. You're trying to explain something that's unexplainable. unexplainable. <laughs> um, so, so I think one of the one of the things uh, that I've come to appreciate. With uh, with more of a Hebraic view or, or a Jewish approach to that is Judaism is not really all that wrapped up about trying to make sure they can define the nature of God and put it in the box and set it on a shelf. Uh, and, and whereas I think Christianity is much more you know focused on making sure everybody has a doctrine that that defines God you know consistently and 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 so I think where I've come to is when you get into those discussions about well how do you how do you explain the nature of God you know he's one but he's but is he three or why well, stop at three and you know all that kind of stuff it gets it gets very academic very quickly you know and becomes a very unfruitful discussion pretty quick not saying it's not worthy to go through the mental gyrations every now and then but I think we have to go into that kind of discussion with a clear understanding that there there, there's, you're not going to come out with an answer, um, or you, you may, 
you may have a, a, a view, but you have to recognize that your view by by virtue of the fact that we can't explain the unexplainable is flawed, or it's short, it's 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 uh, it's going to come up short in some way. So right. thank you for the segue points. Uh, question four: What do you think about the historic Christian confessions of faith? That is, for example, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Chalcedon definition. Um, I'm actually, I found this kind of amusing. I'm going to read to you guys the Apostles' Creed. There's 12 points. I think it's like one short of the 13 principles. We got an extra one. Um, and after each point, if you, if you agree, just give me an amen. This is the Apostles' Creed taken from the Book of Common Prayer according to the Episcopal Church. One, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Amen. amen. And in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. Amen. Who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. I guess I'm in. Depending on definition. I think most of us obviously agree with that. We might have worded it a little bit differently. Right. Four. Uh, <laughs> Four. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. They really don't like that guy. Amen. <laughs> was crucified, dead, and buried, and he descended into hell. Yeah. The third day he rose again from the dead. Amen. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Amen. Amen. So, for those who think we're a cult, you got to be really loving this right now. Uh, number seven. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Amen. amen. For those that didn't say amen, I don't think they realized quick is an old English way of saying the living. <laughs> <laughs> I believe in the Holy Ghost. Amen. Everyone should say amen to this. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Amen. Catholic means universal, by the way, for those of you from Gastonia. I was actually I was really kidding about the everyone should agree to that. I agree with that. You know, yeah, we agree with that. Catholic means universal. We believe in the whole church. The whole visible church. That there is a... The, there is one. That there is a visible the body, of What's the body of Messiah. That was written before there was a okay. Roman Catholic okay. church. <laughs> right. Sorry, I was interpreting that in the 21st century. No, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. I'm good. Yeah. Fine. Okay, good. Yeah, so we're just hey, trying to help here. Communion is not communion, right? And, and communion is not communion, right? Uh, so in that case, I'll give myself an amen. 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 Ten, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. amen. Eleven, the resurrection of the body. Amen. amen. And twelve, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Of those, of those <laughs> points, of those points, Judaism would probably agree with eight of them right off Indeed. the bat, without even thinking about it. So, well, that's where they got from. That's right. They <laughs> <laughs> didn't make that stuff up. <laughs> so it was really just—it was really just whether or not the Holy Spirit caused. Or or, or whatever that you want to rephrase that, yeah. and then the descending into hell. Yeah, descending into hell. Uh, you know, I, right. I think we would need to look to the scripture, right. um, especially fishing. you know some confirmation of perhaps a, an errant apostolic right. trans understanding thing to go right. back to the right. to the Tanakh. Right. Uh, but as far as the uh, Conception by the Holy Spirit. Right. Uh, if that means that the Holy Spirit caused her to conceive, I agree I with one hundred percent. To to believe that the Holy Spirit actually overshadowed her and impregnated her with some type of spirit <laughs> sperm 
um, or as, a, as an Orthodox Jewish rabbi, looked at me in horror and said, you, you believe that Hashem, blessed is he, actually raped a Jewish virgin? You know, and I was like, no, 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 what, what, are you kidding me? No, 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 who said that? I didn't say To an Orthodox Jew, that imagery, the way it's often described, harkens back to, like, Greek mythology Absolutely. where the gods come out of Absolutely. Olympus and, you know, yes. And, so. Yeah, so we were, we were quick to say, no, 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 no. Nobody, nobody ever said that. I didn't, yeah. did you say that? I didn't say that. No, he didn't, he didn't mean that. So, yeah. so Jacob's, for, for those that still think we're a cult, have them listen to the last five minutes. <laughs> Um, and I'm going to quickly read the Nicene Creed because this one I I find it just funny. Um, <coughs> well, because don't, it, don't tell the Nicene. So. <laughs> yeah, don't tell the Nicene. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He came incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Again, they don't like that guy. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. But his kingdom will have no end. And the quick. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, with the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He was spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic Church and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and, get this, the life of the world to come. Uh, amen. Oh, amen. The, the Book of Common Prayer of the Episcopal Church, page 358. At least that's what Wikipedia told me. Was there, was there any issue with that? No, well, I, I, uh, I yeah, think there's. The Greek think, actually have big issues to some yes. of the Greek. Yeah, I think the focus, at least at the time of that particular council, was to, to really solidify the whole Trinity. Exactly. Actually, it was to and keep the, from them from murdering each other. Well, yeah. Um, but the, the deity of the Holy Spirit was extraordinarily important, and the, and the singular verse in the in the Apostolic Scriptures where he is is worshipped um, was brought to bear. Right. Um, and, and the reason why I said it's funny is because I mean I'd much rather just have a verse that says and he sat he sits at the right hand of the Father. Well, I, I think you know? the the I, you know Rick brought it up earlier. The biggest difference here mm-hmm. is men writing down right. what they believe in their words exactly. and then all agreeing to their wow. creed or what's wrong with the Bible well, you know if you talk to a Jew and you say what do you believe about God he's going to throw Tanakh on the table and say everything that's in there right. <laughs> he doesn't need to say anything else it's all right there you know figure right. it out right go ahead and now there's just this term eternally begotten because to beget something implies that there was a beginning. <laughs> Long pregnancy. <laughs> right, exactly. Long labor. Yeah, exactly. You know, this day I have begotten you. So this whole idea of eternally begotten, I mean, like this endless beginning. It's, it's, uh, right. But, you know, but those are those are ontological yeah, arguments that really have no bearing on that. You know, we can we can we can go. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I agree right. with that. But deep down inside, you know, to me, 
all of it just it it just it's it's some of it's actually a little silly because yes. they're oftentimes just ontological arguments. Arguments right. about the makeup of God is like right. who am I to know? Right. Go ahead, I, I want to kind of go back to what Joseph said. Um, he kind of touched on this, but uh, I think a lot of times, I mean, the reason we have these three definitions or creeds, um, a lot of times Christians are more concerned with taking what they know of God and distilling it to something that people who they who hasn't have no knowledge can understand. They they're very concerned with translating that so they can convince people. Whereas yeah. a person who's Jewish will just take his Tanakh and throw it down and say, figure it out. Right. And. It's a journey. Let's go. Uh, yeah. So I, I think that's a, that's a big difference with, with us too. Like we don't try to distill what we know. We we right. we do we do try to help people understand what we do, but we don't try to change or right. um, distill what it is that God is. Right. And, and there's nothing. Right. In, in conclusion, with this, like, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with uh, with trying to make those bullet points. The issue I have is that when it becomes academic, it becomes, now I'm done, I put it on a shelf. If you don't agree with these points I've made, then I can have no fellowship with you, and you do not... We're not in the same club, sorry. Not in the same club. (laughs) And so on the screen, I I kind of gave, this is just my own personal ratings of of the different creeds. The Apostles' Creed gets four out of five, Nicene Creed, three out of five. I'm not even going to read the the, the third one, because it's, it's, again, it's it's rhetoric. It's it's academia. Uh, It's, 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 puffed with 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 uh, like legalistic type of approaches, which isn't bad in and of itself. But again, let's um, not spend less time on establishing creed and focus on the deed. I think is, is the point I'm trying to make. The uh, Council of Chalcedon, 451, uh, in the Common Era, was designed to demonstrate and to and to come up with statements that made it clear that the state was subservient to God. We probably could work on that now <laughs> yeah. uh, in America. Um, but again, to your point, the, you know, the academic exercise yeah. of getting that all down is, is simply culling from the scripture right. to define yet another statement that needs to be addressed. Right. Um, and I don't, I don't, we, don't, we don't see that purpose. Right. And I don't see that in the scriptures. I, I, don't, I right. don't see that happening. Right. And I mean, you can almost summarize our problems with creeds by just looking at the fact that there are three on your screen right now within 500 years. Yeah. It's like the scripture, they stopped writing the scriptures, and then in the next 400 years, they had to somehow come up with three different definitions of what it is that they believe. And, and that is the history of them, is to keep from killing each other. Right. It's like there's too it much. It's like an inherent disagreement point. I, I, right. I think there's there's a really important point that we should make, especially to Jacob. The reason why these creeds were actually made was because, as time went by, from the first century, when the, when the Master was crucified, and the apostles started to form a Gentile church that was unfortunately pushing itself away from the Jewish church, which was pushing the, the Gentile church away. As, as these forces were coming to pass, we find if we, if we don't listen to the church historians and if we don't listen to the pulpit for a moment, if we look to the true history, we find 
that as late as four, five, six, seven hundred years after the Messiah was crucified, we find that there were still Gentiles new to the faith that were keeping the practices of Judaism. They were keeping the festivals, keeping Shabbat, the Sabbath, on Saturday, on the seventh day as commanded. And many of these creeds and these councils were were formed in order to stop those people from practicing the way we are practicing today. And if we overlook that or if we just um, wash that away, shame on us because men and women just like us gave their lives because Gentiles chose to kill them instead of letting them practice their faith as we're doing today. In particular, the Nicene canons. The Nicene canons actually are curses upon people who do what we do. And all we so, read is the creed rather right. than the whole deal. Right. So suffice it to say that... Um, sorry, Jacob. Personally, yeah. <laughs> Jacob, uh, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of creeds uh, in and of themselves, uh, but more so deeds. So that's, that's kind of all I had. The next question... And uh, how much time do I have? As much as you need. As much as I need. Next question, five. What is the Bible? Where does it come from? And what level of authority does it have in your tradition? I think he he worded that kind of cool. Good job, Jacob. Um, So this is something that everyone here I know is more more (coughs) capable of answering. So I just kind of threw up a graph here. I have, even though it looks like a pagan symbol, I have a pyramid and I our have, people built those. <laughs> That's right. And, uh, so I have five levels of what I'm calling, and I, keep in mind, I didn't get enough time to kind of articulate this, but of uh, progressive revelation and levels of authority. And this also kind of ties into the next question, how, what method do we use in interpreting the scriptures? So primarily, Jacob, this is, this is a paramount to, to our... Uh, uh, predilections uh, on, on why we do what we do. The five levels of biblical authority over tradition are the Torah, the Tanakh, or the rest of the Old Testament, the apostolic writings, everything in the New Testament. Four, Talmudic halakha, I'll define that later. And five, Midrash, I'll define that as well. Now let's talk again, the first, which is the foundation of all of them, is the Torah. We believe, and I personally strongly believe, that the Torah is the foundation apart from or, uh, God chose to uh, reveal himself and his, and his plan of redemption in the first five books of the Bible, we call it the Torah and nothing uh, no revelation after the Torah can contradict what the Torah has established that is paramount like I said, in our approach to interpreting scripture and it's because the Torah itself said that Indeed, I think it's also important to define, to give some de- some definition to the word Torah itself. It's most often translated as law well, in English, which is not not incorrect, but it doesn't really speak to the whole essence of the Torah. Right. The the tor- the word Torah in Hebrew really has more the connotation of instructions mm-hmm. or guidelines. So the five books of of Moses, uh, which which we call and Judaism calls the Torah is essentially the, the the foundation to the house 
and, and, and anybody who knows anything about architecture or building knows that if you're found if you don't have a strong foundation, you know the walls, the roof, everything else above that is is always going to be shaky. So the Torah is the foundation, and the Torah. The reason why the Torah has um, has the highest level of authority is because the manner in which the Torah was revealed. The Torah was given directly from the mouth of Hashem, of God, to Moses on the mountain. Face to face. Face to face, according to the scriptures. So it's, it's in essence, God uh, personally dictated to Moses these things that Moses recorded. Um, unlike the rest of the Old Testament, or, or what we call the Tanakh, um, the, the prophets... They received their revelation, certainly by the inspiration of, of God uh, through the Holy Spirit, but it was inspiration. They, they received their revelation primarily in visions, um, dreams, in dreams uh, but it was not a direct face-to-face encounter like the Torah. And the writings, the writings, particularly the book of Psalms, um, you know, again, certainly inspired by God, but but... They were the manner in which the revelation came or the inspiration came was significantly different than the Torah. So that is the reason why the Torah has to has the highest level of authority in everything else, all the prophets and writings and everything in the New Testament and any other commentary cannot contradict something in the Torah. And, and uh, the most common phrase, for people that don't know, the most common phrase in all of the Bible is, and Hashem spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying. Yes. yes. That's right. Hundreds of times. I was just going to add to what you mentioned, Brother Greg, about like even when you look at the parable that Yeshua gave about the wise man who built his house on the rock and the unwise on the sand, you know, that can very well be pointed to the Torah. Absolutely. Indeed. And the Tanakh, obviously, if we go back to the pyramid diagram, is the next level of revelation that God chose, divinely chose, to reveal himself in. Nothing in the rest of the Tanakh, the rest of the Old Testament, can contradict the first five books of the Bible. According to the book of Deuteronomy, the back end of chapter 12, in the, uh, in the first half of chapter 13, where if anyone, a prophet, a dreamer of dreams, comes to you and, and gives you a word that is contrary to the book that is called the Torah, they are a false prophet. Uh, that is paramount, again, in understanding the foundation that God established with the giving of the Torah. So the third level is the apostolic writings. And even, even myself, I was going to try to uh, articulate this better. I do think that the Gospels have more weight. I mean, again, that is like direct um, connection, direct revelation from the mouth of God. So, I, and again, assuming that the Torah cannot be overridden, um, I do think those, the four Gospels and the, teaching, and, the, and the teachings of our Master Yeshua have more weight. Um, and then, now, let me, under, uh, let me explain, uh, define the, the other terms. The fourth level, I call it Talmudic Halakha, I'm not. This is me personally, Jacob. I'm not sure where everyone is uh, in the room is on this issue, but I do believe that the Torah uh, was given to Moshe, the written Torah. He came down from the mountain with it, and currently, I am beginning to believe 
that Moshe also came down with an understanding of how to keep certain commandments. That uh, without his understanding, which is a tri- we call the traditional understanding, called the Oral Torah, without that, those commandments in the Torah would have to be made up on, on how you're going to keep them. Uh, I, I'm not sure if that does it justice, but yes, sir. Just as a quick example to help with that. Um, the apostolic scriptures themselves speak of the master going a Sabbath day's journey. And yet, and yet the Torah does not say anything about how far a Sabbath day journey is other than to don't say, don't go out of your place no. on the Sabbath. Perfect example. So, how far is that? Well, right. we do know from Talmud HaKalachah. Thank you. And again, that's a distant four. I'm not saying it's required I am saying it's legitimate, it has a place of authority, and we need to treat it as such. But, um, just for Jacob's sake, yeah. Talmud Halakha is completely irrelevant yeah. if you don't think Maybe. that you need to keep the Torah. <laughs> it's only important if you try to actually keep it. <laughs> then you need to know, okay, how do you do this? <laughs> what constitutes What constitutes easy? easy? How do I tie these knots? When should I wear them? What color should they be? Right. Is it any color blue? Is it this color blue? Um, uh, I need yeah. some guidance. Yeah. It, should I make it up on my own? Right. And, and fall into the trap, as the book of Judges says, where every man is doing what's right in his own eyes? Right. Or should I look to a wisdom, the wisdom of a multitude of counselors who came before me? Yes. The, the 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 Talmud, without getting into a bunch of history on where, how that came about and whatnot, the the Talmud and the discussion of the halakha. That term halakha, by the way, just is the Hebrew word that means uh, to walk. So uh, halakha is the way we walk. It's how we live our lives day to day. It's very Pauline so, phrase. So exactly. You walk circumspect. Uh, walk circumspect. Walk in the spirit. Okay, uh, that's all kind of that concept of halakha. But the, the, the Talmud, uh, you know, certainly, I mean, obviously Christianity totally disregards those, those Jewish writings. Uh, most groups within Messianic Judaism or Hebrew roots even, to the large extent, disregard those writings. Uh, and, and they're really, they're, they're discussions about how to keep the commandments and, and their commentaries on that. And at the end of the day, where where I shake out on this is um, when you sit down to read the Bible. Um, you you know even if you can read Scripture in its original language, if you can read the Old Testament in, in the original Hebrew, if you can read the, the the New Testament in the in the in the Greek, that's great. And and I'm certainly all in, all all in favor of people trying to get to that point because. After all, that is the Bible. The English is not your Bible. Uh, the English is a translation of your Bible. So the Hebrew and the Greek is the actual Bible as it was as it was given. But the point is this: even if we were all linguistic gurus in Hebrew, you know, in, in, in you know Paleo Hebrew, Aramaic, and Koine Greek, right? So maybe we still have to. At the end of the day, we might have a better understanding of what the scriptures actually say. We still have to interpret what they mean. And to interpret what the scriptures means requires a commentary. And so a lot of people say, well, we shouldn't rely on commentaries, bless God, let's just stick to the word, to the scripture, right? And while in, 
in spirit, I understand what they mean by that, and I, and I support the sentiment. The reality is that person who's making that statement, they interpret through a commentary, whether they, whether they recognize it or want to admit, admit it. Right. They may be using Matthew Henry. They might be using... Um, Joel Osteen? Joel Osteen. They're they using, might be using, using their local pastor. They might be using... Um, Strong's uh, Concordance. Michael Rude, Strong's Concordance. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, or they might use the Talmud. Okay? The point is this. All of us have our own Talmud. All of us have our own commentary, whether we really think about it that way or not. So the question is, whose commentary are you going to use to help interpret what the scriptures mean? Not not, not what they say, because we can learn the language and we can figure out what they say, but we still have to interpret what they mean. So at the end of the day, where I shake out on this is um, most people are relying on somebody else's commentary uh, and, and to the extent they're not, they're making up their own commentary. Which goes back to what you just said. When, when we all make up our own commentary on the scriptures, then what are we doing? We're all doing what's right in our own eyes. And we saw how well that worked out in the book of Judges, right? So my current view is God gave the oracles, uh, God gave his oracles to the Jewish people. They've uh, guarded and protected them with their very life for millennia. Um, and they have a unique insight. Not to say they have the only insight, but they have a unique insight and perspective because they've maintained this this tradition coming down for so long. Um, and so my view is, if I've got to have a commentary to understand what they what the scriptures mean, then I'm not going to make up my own commentary. I'm going to look first to the commentary that's been handed down through God's people. Not exclusively. I'm not going to look exclusively to that, but I'm going to start there. Mm-hmm. It, uh, the Talmud is a 500-year-old, a 500-year-long Bible study mm-hmm. that is incredibly rich. And and modern Christianity doesn't necessarily recognize how valuable the Talmud is. But when the Talmud was rediscovered by Christianity in the days of the Reformation. Every seminary had massive Talmudic studies. It was a big part of your seminary training was to study the Talmud. And what most modern Christians don't know is a lot of their doctrine comes from the Talmud because it doesn't come from Scripture. No one, everybody, you know, every Southern preacher out there talks about the Shekinah glory. There ain't nothing in the Bible. The word is not found. It's found in the Talmud. The Talmud talks about the Shekinah, and we speak about the Shekinah, and no one even knows what it is until they go to the Talmud. (laughs) The irony. So... The last point, uh, briefly, midrash. It's a Hebrew word. It means from a teaching, or it is a. It has nothing to do with what I do. It's not halacha, not the way I walk, but it's uh, it's a it's a story that may or may not be true, but it's conveying a larger point, a big picture point. Parable. A parable, exactly. A mushal, uh, an, an, an analogy, and that. To me, I think if you go into a Christian bookstore or a Jewish bookstore, all of the books on spirituality they have, to me, I, I put that in, the, I lump all those in this bucket. It's it's a teaching, it's a midrash, it, has, it might give a cool understanding, but it's not scripture. It has a level to play, and, and, um, and in my life I can be edified by it, but it is a far distant five compared to the rest of the scriptures. So, yes, sir. Um. The only comment I would make to, to add on to what you said is that 
in the Christian bookstores, all the Midrash appears to be just kind of mishmashed, all mixed together. But in Jewish Midrash, we have Halakhic Midrash and Agadic Midrash. So we have we have the teachings and explanations that are intended to adjust or teach us how to walk, right. and then we have uh, specifically yeah. to say, do it this way. This is how far a Sabbath day's journey is, and then we have the agotic stuff, which is storytelling, right. where we you know we, we tell a fanciful story like. Uh, um, uh, the the guy with that uh, chopped the wood uh, that we tell the story to the kids. Um, hmm? Paul nope. Bunyan. Paul Bunyan. Yeah, that kind of thing, right? Okay. It's it's a it's yeah. a story I to teach. Thinking, I was thinking yeah. Jewish. Yeah, no, no, I realized as soon as I said it. Wait a minute, oh, they're not going to get wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah, I was getting George Washington. Yeah, so we got <laughs> same kind of thing. All right, so an agotic story about George Washington and tell and being truthful and honest is chopping down a cherry tree. Same thing, right? So we've got two yeah. different kind yeah. of midrashim to. So that we might grow and learn and promote a particular idea. Right. So, in conclusion, on this slide, the Torah is foundation. Really, that's the most important thing. God's progressive revelation um, is then happens in chronological order. Next, the next question I think is, uh, is is where we start to get into kind of the meat of what defines us. Now, I hope we've proved that we are not a cult. We do worship the same God. We have the same scriptures. Now we're going to talk about the things that really make us distinct from the rest of both the Christian church and from Judaism more in depth, according to the, the questions of, from Jacob. Six, what are the particular approaches or methods that you employ in interpreting the biblical text? This sort of ties in, but someone quickly give me the explanation of Pardes. Peshat. It's a... Um Basically, it's how you look at scripture in the different layers, as it were. There's a surface level where everything is with the, exactly what it says, point blank, literal meaning. Um, there's the things that sort of, uh, we would say, cross-referencing in right. Christianity, where you, or, where you see a word or a phrase, and you see, well, where else is this used? What, what else is it referred to? And, and, and that's the second step. There's the second step. Four, so. The third step is um, Drash teaching. It's much like the Midrash you're mentioning earlier. It's, it's like... Um, we see a concept, and we're going to expound on the concept and look at how it may be used elsewhere in Scripture. Right. Um, it's sometimes more allegorical, yeah, you know, metaphorical. It's like amazing how many times wells show up in the Tanakh. <laughs> um, the last one being sowed, which is the mystical or deeper element. This could be something like seeing that uh, the spelling of this word is is misspelled. Why is it misspelled? And where else is it misspelled? And could it be maybe the, the, the two references that were the that happens to be an extra letter happen to be related? Right. That that kind of concept. So there's, but the most important thing is that they all fall in rank. The surface level, the literal level, is number one, and the other ones can never contradict that. Right. And the mystical one, even though it's perhaps the most entertaining yeah. of the group, is the least, is the least invalid and the least important. So that you can never use a, a mystical interpretation to trump any of the layers. Right. This this is actually a really good definition of, of of a difference between traditional Christianity and Messianic Judaism is that treatment of the word shot, the surface level. Because what Christianity often does is, an example is Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to, don't even think it, that I've come to abolish the Torah and the prophets, but rather to fulfill. And using that very verse in 
turning it on its head to say, well, fulfill means you don't have to do it anymore. Noah said, don't think that. Right. <laughs> so the, the, the allegorical, the remez and the drosh level, the allegorical levels or the commentary level overturns the very surface level. Right. We would say the surface level can never be overturned. That's good. Yeah. Very good. So that's quick, but I think that that is really the approach we all take. And I think um, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just end there so we, can get to, so we can try to finish tonight. Next. <laughs> <laughs> Someone will be teaching that next week, Jacob. Don't worry. Here. The next one, um, oh, I didn't update this. Too bad. Um, <laughs> okay. Question seven: The Apostle Paul's writings make up a good deal for uh, of the Christian New Testament. Who was Paul? How important are his writings for Christianity? And what factors do we need to consider when reading and interpreting the Pauline letters? Uh, first, let me say that uh, in my sparring back and forth with Jacob, he I, I, I told him flat out what I think about Paul, and he responds something like this in his Facebook message: "Like, wow." You really have a different perspective from what mainstream Christianity has on Paul. Yes. For that, dot, dot, dot. I salute you, sir. <laughs> so. Two quick things on Paul. Um, that three, th- three quick things on Paul. Three things. <clears throat> yeah, four. And they're, quick. <laughs> and they're quick. And they're quick. quick. Time it. 30 seconds. If they match um, mine, it's good. Perfect. All right. Number one, if I'm going to talk about my faith and how I practice it with a Christian, I'm going to ask them to put Paul aside for just a second so we can look at the rest of the Bible. Come to agreement, and then we can look at Paul. Because if we come to agreement on the entire Bible except for Paul, and then we look at Paul and it seems to contradict it, we must be interpreting him wrong. That's number one. Number two. I think that it's very important to recognize that at the end of his life, Paul made it clear that he was a Pharisee still and obedient in all ways, not only to the Torah itself, but to the traditions of his people at the end of his life. Not just when he got saved and went, oh, yeah, gosh, I really shouldn't be doing that. No, at the end of his life. And then third, I can't remember. So Paul is Kazal Kazal to me. Uh, when I when I think of Kazal, I and I you know my and the, and my favorites, you yeah. know, like Halil and Eliezer and, and Rabbi Joshua, Paul's there with them. Right. Because they're he's the contemporary. He, right. He is the, the our sage of our messianic. Absolutely. Community, as, yeah. as is Peter, as is all, all the other disciples. Mm. So I, I kind of threw it on the I didn't get to really edit this. was a Torah scholar. Amen. That I mean, Amen. He was a Pharisee. And I just threw some references up here. For those listening, look at the PowerPoint, read those. The, that's when Shaul is telling, like you said, at the end of his life, um, I have not. Uh, he sat at the feet of, uh, of Gamliel. The second one, I believe, is he's talking about how. I was zealous, and I am zealous for the law, as you are, followed by, I have done nothing against the law of the Jews, nor of the customs of our fathers. That brings us to the second point, which is, he, he kept the Jewish traditions and customs. He, he, again, he was a Torah scholar, he was a Pharisee. And check out those, those references for yourself. Yes, sir. 
Um, not only uh, the book of Acts, as you've uh, quoted here, but also he writes to at least two different community, church communities, and says, I'm encouraging you to keep the traditions as we deliver them to you. Not just the Word of God, but the traditions right. of Judaism. The right. guy was a Jew. <laughs> yes, go ahead. Now, I'm just going to sit back and, and put okay. on autopilot. You guys take I'm just, just, you know, just small thing. Just exactly like that. He's, he says that he's a Pharisee. He would, like, Paul wouldn't say that unless he was acknowledged as one. So, like, not only was did he consider himself one, other people considered him. Right. Well. Other, other people and, considered him. And, and, and let me, on that point, the yeah. fact that he defines himself as a Pharisee is incredibly important for for. for for Christianity to kind of come to grips with because at least my experience in the church was the term Pharisee was a four letter word mm-hmm. right synonymous with hypocrite and uh, low life low life and you know all of those Legalist. other connotations and it's because because we because the focus was looking at in the gospels where Yeshua uh, on occasion took certain Pharisees to task when they were going off the railroad track and rightly so but I would say I would submit this to to, to Jacob and others. Uh, part of it is kind of like it's kind of like Jonathan is my son, so I can have a level of frankness with him that I cannot have with Peter because Peter's not my son, right? Uh, in other words, Yeshua, I think, uh, took the Pharisees to task. Uh, much more uh, forcefully because they're family. And when family is doing something that's wrong, you want to, you want to address that. And so, uh, so, but because there's been this view to focus on the, the corrupt uh, temple leadership, which is actually Sadducees, uh, and, the, and the and the few Pharisees that you know were off off uh, off the train track. Christianity, by and large, has taken the word Pharisee and turned it into something really, really bad. But yet, Paul, the very uh, uh, writer uh, that the church lifts up on a pedestal and quotes more than any other person in the uh, you know uh, in the in the whole Bible, defined himself as a Pharisee. So that should cause that traditional view of Pharisees. That should cause you to kind of stop and wonder and say, "Well, wait a minute. If Paul, who wrote two thirds of the New Testament that I hold so dearly and quote so often, defined himself as a Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Pharisee of Pharisees, then then I need to make sure I really understand how to how to come to grips with what a Pharisee is." Is there anything Greg? Well, and then uh, there were some Pharisees that even recognized Yeshua for who he was. Lots of them. I remember one of the uh, teachings that you gave, you know, when they were asking Yeshua, how come your disciples don't wash their hands? It wasn't that they were spying on Yeshua and his disciples, you know, trying to figure out, well, what are they doing? They were following They were following That's exactly right. Sometimes it's helpful for me to understand it. Paul, like uh, a guest speaker somewhere, if you had heard him speak a lot of other times and he's giving a series of lectures or something like that, then you're going to be able to understand him a lot better because you know where he's coming from. But if you just are sitting in for the first time on one of the last things that he's saying, (laughs) then you're going to misunderstand a lot of things. 
because you don't know what he, where he's coming from. Segway points for Greg. I summed it up. What factors do we need to consider with Paul? His Jewish and Torah context and presuppositions are deep, powerful, often implied, and hard to understand, void of a Torah foundation, hint, hint, 2 Peter 3, 15, 3, 18. Peter said the same. Peter says the exact same thing. If lawless men will misinterpret Paul uh, because they're lawless, exactly like that. Toraless men. Toraless men, exactly. Uh, one of the death defining characteristics of the Pharisee, to get back to that, is uh, Matthew chapter 23. And really, a lot of a lot of the church's uh, bias against Pharisees comes from Matthew chapter 23. And yet, Matthew chapter 23 begins with the Master, Messiah Himself, saying to His followers that they should do what the Pharisees do. Set teach. Say, say what they say. Not what they do. Yeah. Excuse me. Thank you. But the point. Yeah. But what they say yeah, yeah. is to do things. Right. My point is though that the, the practices of the Pharisees, by divine command, right. have been given to the followers of Jesus. Indeed. Right. And, and I know I'm preaching to the choir in this group. For the sake of those listening, who are the heirs of Pharisaical Judaism today? Rabbinic Judaism. Rabbinic Judaism. That's. Orthodox Judaism. Orthodox Judaism. That's what Shaul meant, really, when he said, I am a Pharisee, my Pharisees. That's the closest equivalent we have. Look at their origin to figure out what Paul meant by that. And it's a saying that means something. Sorry. I I think this was a good question because Peter really says it so well, as they do also with the rest of the scriptures. Because when you're twisting Paul's words and you're misunderstanding him, it's going to spill over into the rest of your interpretation of scripture. Right. Indeed. And, I mean, I think perhaps the big, one of the biggest tragedies of understanding Paul was the um, um, Sunday school Bible verse list approach in which we basically pulled one verse from Romans 3 right. and one verse from Romans 14 and one verse from Galatians 5, and that was all that we read. And it's like the, if you if you you can't even begin to comprehend a book as complicated as Romans without basically reading the entire thing in one sitting, but, right. which is how it was originally read. Well, yeah, he, once. It, as the church prints it out, he contradicts himself at least four times in Romans. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it goes back to the to the pyramid slide, right? Because yeah. what's happened is um, Christianity has has taken Paul and used Paul to interpret the Torah. Which is exactly opposite. You have to filter Paul through the Torah, because otherwise, if you filter, if you use the Torah to to filter Paul, his his what he's teaching makes sense. Right. If you go, if you approach it the other way, you you contradicts himself. Right. It sounds contradictory, and you reach some really hokey conclusions. Right. <laughs> and I, I, I heard a great quote. Uh, closing statement on this slide. It was from my former uh, teacher, rabbi. I, I couldn't find it, but it went something like this. Um, Scriptural significance cannot be overturned by one or two verses that seem contradictory. Or something along those lines. Right. And that really is, is what it comes down to when, when you approach Paul's. Those two or three verses in the entire book that raise the eyebrows, you've know, you, you got to go to the context. Absolutely. Um, to my to my point before, if if you read Paul and it appears to contradict the Torah, then you're either reading him wrong, 
understanding of wrong, or he was a false prophet. There's no in-between, because the Scripture tells us there's no in-between. So, we all believe that Paul was led by the Holy Spirit, and that what he wrote is Scripture. So, if we think that it contradicts earlier Scripture... We're wrong. We have to be, or he's a false prophet. And we know that's not true. Again, Deuteronomy 12 and 13 for those references. So I'm going to get, uh, we're coming close to the home stretch, but these next I think are are, are really good. Hopefully, we've established we're not not a cult. And since we're talking about Shaul, we obviously uh, really admire and um, look towards him as our sage. So now we're going to get into the the question number eight. Paul talks a lot about the law in his letters, especially those to the churches of Galatia and Rome. What is the law that Paul is referring to? How are we to understand his writings concerning the law in our present context? So this is Paul versus the law. Um, And this is going to sound redundant, but Shaul was a Pharisee. He he is a... uh, uh, as he says, a Pharisee among Pharisees. So he is a, a law scholar. He's a genius. If you have a question about what the Torah says about a particular issue, yeah, you yeah. go to Shaul. He memorized the Torah. I personally believe that. So he, for someone who would fight tooth and nail against the law, he surely had a pretty good control of it, I think, uh, and would spend a lot of time meditating in it. So I don't see the those characteristics as coinciding in one person. Um, but really, it comes down to, if you're going to read the book of Galatians, you're going to read, uh, primarily, have you ever heard of Beit Shammai? Um, and Jacob, I think, has. I'm not sure about the average the average Christian. It's, it's uh, You will not be able to understand the book of Galatians properly without understanding the history of Beit Shammai. Um, and Beit Hillel. And Beit Hillel. The and houses... Right. The debates of what was going on, the uh, the current issues, the hot topic issues at the time, uh, is really what's going on in the book of Galatians, primarily in chapter 3. What is the argument of Galatians chapter 3 regarding Goim, regarding the Gentiles? And that's more or less um, the turning point. And I had something I wanted to read. Let's see if I can find it. I had a lot of points on this. I think my brain's about dead. Someone quickly, as I'm looking, give me the history between Beit Hillel and Beit Shemai. Uh, Beit Hillel and Beit Shemai. In the in the first century, there was there was a debate because there were so many Gentiles being uh, approaching. Uh, the people of Israel and wanting to worship the God of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, um, how to deal with the Gentiles, whether they should become Jews, uh, going through a ritual conversion process, or how they should be treated. And the apostolic scriptures have many references to this very debate, but it's it's in the language of the debate between Beit Shammai and Beit Hallel, and so reading it from our perspective sometimes is completely foreign. We read the word circumcision and immediately think that it means the cutting off of the foreskin, not understanding that 99% of the time in the apostolic scriptures the word circumcision is used. It's not actually talking about that. It's talking about ritual conversion, whereby in the first century, 
a Gentile could be considered Jewish, genetically Jewish, even so that their familiar relations completely changed afterwards, where before they were uh, a Gentile from, my father was a Gentile, my mother was a Gentile too, I don't have a father and mother that are not Jewish. It was dramatic. Beit Shammai is like, no Gentiles, shoo them away. Beit Hallel says, bring them in. So we have the two, two main camps of Pharisaic Judaism that treat Gentiles completely differently. Right. And uh, the concept of justification, which Paul uses that word a lot in chapter 3. Justification. What's your standing? What, what's, your, what's your standing? Amongst the people, who, who, how do you stand? Right. In other words, if I'm a Gentile and I'm, and I'm, and I'm in a group of, uh, am I living in the land of Israel, if I'm a Gentile, what's my justification for doing that? Right? Is it because I follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or am I a merchant? Right? Yeah. And if I'm if I'm doing it on the basis of wait, wait, I raised my hand and I went and I did a conversion process, that's what he's talking about when he's talking exactly. about your justification. You can't be justified right. by circumcision. Right. You can't be set right in the people's eyes. Right. In the, in Galatians, perfect example of this. In Galatians, the term justification almost never refers to God. It refers to the people around, the covenant people. Indeed. And, and like you said, ju- justification is not based on those actions, actions of conversion, actions of, of the Brit Milah, of circumcision. You're not justified by actions at all. That's the point that Shoal is making exactly to, right. to the Gentiles who, would, who were being told, contrary, I have to convert, I have to be justified in my right standing by doing something. That to me is 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 the point Paul is is is, uh, is establishing, and he talks about well, really, what's the purpose uh, of of the Torah? This is this is what I wanted to read from our our good friend Tim Hegg. The Torah was given to reveal how God deals with transgressions among His people, and how He intends to forgive them and restore the sinner to a place of fellowship. That's how Tim Hegg summarizes that chapter, and it's beautiful because. It has nothing to do with the righteousness uh, of even of our forefather Avraham, which is the way uh, chapter three starts. It says, um, I'll, "I'll read verse eight." And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, "And you shall all the nations be blessed." And that's the hot topic issue at, at Shoal's time that was on everyone's mind that got all the press that no one remembers today. And reinterpreting this chapter with your 21st century Christian eyes, you completely miss that. It's a gap you'll never get unless you put yourself in the contact of the time and know the controversies of Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. True. And, and I think, just to just to echo that, you know, these two schools of, of Pharisees, Beit Shammai, Beit Hillel, uh, you know, as... As um, Rick has already stated, Beit Shammai was very much against allowing Gentiles to come into the community unless they went through this legal ritual conversion. Uh, and Beit Hillel, which it's important when we talk about Paul to understand that Paul was a Pharisee from the school of Hillel. So Paul uh, was of the pers- of, of that uh, Pharisaical school, which said no. Gentiles can become part of the community, and of course, it's 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 no coincidence that you know a, a Pharisee from Beit Hillel is who God chose Amen. to then take the good news 
to the Gentiles. Gentiles. Absolutely. So, uh, so yes. Yeah, so the the whole the whole you know, one of the keys to understanding all of Paul's epistles is the debates that were raging uh, in his day, because most of what he's writing is addressing the controversies that were being discussed around the, the dinner table and in the synagogue and in the gates of the city. And that's what he's addressing. And if you have no history on the controversies that were happening between Beit Shemai and Beit Hillel or the Pharisees and the Sadducees or, or some of these other issues, you are... You're, 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 you, you can read Paul and know what he says, but you have no idea what he means. <laughs> there you go. I agree. There so, you go. in conclusion, don't cast off the Torah because one or two verses that seem contradictory. I think that, that was why I said earlier. Because... Like I said, those 21st century Christian glasses won't cut it in order to understand uh, specifically the book of Galatians, I, I do believe. Jonathan, how many questions you got left? Um, two. And the next one's pretty short. Yeah. Yeah, we're on the home stretch. How do you read and apply the Torah? It's more or less question nine. Here, I hope you've got an idea of this by now, Jacob, and those who are, who are listening. What did Yeshua... Uh, sorry, how did Yeshua use the Torah? Um, and the best example of that is Luke 24, 27, the road to Emmaus. He's sitting with these two guys who are clueless in, in a lot of regards. Yeshua's already risen from the dead. These guys are bummed. They, they, they had all this hope and all this charisma in Yeshua. He died. The, their Messiah, their hope of redemption died. And they didn't understand the Torah enough to know that's exactly the way God intended it to be. And Yeshua, for a few hours, walking on the road, went through every instance in the Torah and in the prophets to show that is exactly what God's intention was from the beginning. That is the way Yeshua used the Torah. That is the way I strive, and hopefully I will have a percentage of that ability to show that the Messiah is on every page of the Old Testament, starting from the book of Genesis to Deuteronomy. And that made me um, feel like a wimp when the only thing I could point to was Isaiah 53. Uh, when everything before that is, is just as profound. If you can't prove the redemption of Messiah from the first book of the Bible, then what the heck are you doing in the rest of it? You have to start with what, what really is the point of the Torah. It, it is guidance, it is commandments, but it is the promise of Yeshua. Uh, and, and more or less, that's, that's kind of all I said on this slide. Of course, how do you read and apply the commandments side? I, I think you get the point now. We're kind of literalists to a certain extent. If it says, wear tzitzit, wear fringes, we wear fringes. Imagine that. If it says, uh, congregate on the seventh day of the week, guess what we do? We congregate on the seventh day of the week. Don't pick up sticks. Don't light fires. We don't do that. How, how, do, you, how do you read and apply Torah? Um, with my eyes and then with the rest of my life. So. Here you go. This starts at the end. Last question. And this is a little bit of a technical wait, one. Wait, wait, wait a second, Jonathan. Yes, there, there's one point here that I think is critical for the men that are sitting in this room. How do I read and apply the Torah? I do that with these men. Because a community of Torah-keeping believers is essential. Yes. And... I, I praise God for every guy sitting in this room and for the opportunity we have to not only practice our faith singly, freely in this country, mm -hmm. but also with each other and, and to 
enjoy the fellowship and the opportunity to pray together. Far required for you. Amen. One, one additional thought is when it comes to the daily application, I mean, I think we, we all recognize that Yeshua is, in fact, the living Torah. He is the embodiment of all of the scriptures that were laid down uh, through the various, you know, through the various revelation and inspiration that God gave to, to, to the writers. That all becomes embodied in the life and person of Messiah Yeshua. So when we look at how do we live our life and how do we apply the Torah on a day-to-day basis, Shaul, Paul said, look, imitate me because I'm imitating the Messiah. In other words, we should be looking to the life of Yeshua and what did he do, right? And the scripture is clear. He went to synagogue on Shabbat, on the Sabbath, on the seventh day. He kept kosher. He did, he did all of the things that uh, so, so much of the church has said doesn't really apply. Or they said, well, he did them, so now I don't have to. You know, uh, you know all of those different arguments. But the point is, Paul said we're supposed to be imitating Messiah. And so at the end of the day, when it comes to how do we apply the Torah, we try to do our best to follow the example of our Messiah. Is the Torah, is the Torah burdensome? No. First John may it never be. And, indeed. The scripture says it's not. It's not. <laughs> the book of James makes it clear that it is holy. It is the Torah of liberty. It is not confinement. It is not legalism that we strive for, even though I don't necessarily have a problem with, with calling that. If, if, if legalism is equated with obedience, then call, by all means call me a legalist. Okay. I don't have a problem with that. The last, last question. Oh, go ahead. I was just saying, we we do it out of, out of a sense of joy, not out of a sense of duty. Indeed, I yeah. We, we we don't keep the Torah because we have to. We keep the Torah because we get to, and uh, that, that really says it all. Last question was uh, pretty good. Again, finding those particular inconsistencies. If if everything we've set up to now, if our predispositions are true, then what do we do with? dietary laws and applying them, especially in light of the passages uh, that seem contradictory, such as Romans 14. And this, uh, to end the note on time, a technical discussion of Halakha, which is cool, I'm fine with that. Um, opinions, not means vote. If, if you remember correctly, uh, Shoal starts off this chapter with, there are some opinions amongst you that this guy thinks that he can only eat vegetables, this guy says everything is good for him, what have you. Um, and start it off, if that's the way this chapter starts with the word opinion, it is not the opinion of Paul, uh, or rather, Paul cannot opinionize a commandment. A commandment is not anyone's opinion except God's, and his opinions are not suggestions, but that's why they're called commands. So I, so I think that's that was kind of the first thing that I saw but really if you read the whole entire chapter it starts off of course talking about um, uh, you know one who, one, who, one man in his faith may eat all things but he who is weak can, you know, eats only vegetables but later on you get to about verses 14 and 15 Paul elaborates on this issue of eating by identifying the conflict as a matter of purities he, he uses the words uh, clean and unclean some call things 
clean, some for others it's unclean. He says, to, to me, there's nothing in, unclean in and of itself, so that's cool. I could smoke pot. Paul says it's not unclean, there's nothing wrong with it. That has nothing to do with what he's saying, because, again, Paul cannot trump any Torah commandment. And the fact that he's talking about clean and unclean this in the ritual status, right, is different than allowed and not allowed, allowed and forbidden. Those terminologies would be a commandment. Paul, nor any other Jew in his time period, would argue that the seventh day, which is also in the context of this chapter, has, you know, the, 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 uh, the Sabbath is, you know, is, is up to whatever you want. Some think you can worship God on Monday. For one, it's the week in the faith, that's Tuesdays. Hmm. No, that Paul nor any other Jew would have that in, uh, as, as a card-carrying philosophy. That's not the issue is what is a mitzvah, it's what's an opinion in a ritual purity opinion. Go ahead. He should have been stoned if that's what he thought. That's right. In other words, if Romans 14 teaches what Christianity says it teaches, then the accusations against Paul, the false accusations against Paul and Peter and others, that Christianity is siding with the liars. Right. They are false accusations. Paul's Paul's point here, and it's very unfortunate that that Christianity doesn't recognize the Talmud because the technical terms being used in Romans chapter 14, in particular, exactly as you the, the the English words common and clean, unclean, those are technical terms that the Talmud very easily defines that you can see exactly what he's talking about versus we're not supposed to follow Leviticus 11, which, again, if Paul said, then we should be ripping those pages out of our Bible because Paul's a false prophet. Right. Go ahead. And, Just, and, and regarding the, the day-keeping issue, um, you may touch on this yourself, but um, it was customary in the first century to have days set aside for fasting. Mm-hmm. In fact, in Judaism today, yeah. there are a whole slew of fasts that are not biblical, and even extra bonus ones if you happen to also want to keep those. So it's like um, fasting was a normal thing. If you think about the, the context of Romans 14 dealing with eating, all uh, this, this is not my, my description of this. I've heard this from somewhere else. But the, that makes a whole lot of sense for the day issue to also deal with eating if the entire rest of the context of the chapter is eating. It would be kind of strange for Paul to be having a discussion on whether or not you can have a ham sandwich and then pop in and say, oh, by the way, if you want to keep Christmas or not, it's okay. Right. It makes a whole lot more sense for Paul to say, okay, now if you think it's bad for you to eat any meat at all because it might be contaminated somehow, right. oh, and by the way, if you choose not to eat eat anything on Tuesdays, that's cool too. And that makes a whole lot more sense. Right. Yeah. Well, so uh, a couple things. One is... Uh, the context here, Paul is addressing a community of believers. Mm-hmm. So these are a group of people who have already attached themselves to the scriptures. And let's keep in mind, the only scriptures they had was the Old Testament. Well, let's also keep in mind that the only kind of believers back then are Jews. Right. They're, they're attaching themselves to Israel. At least and, half and the congregation is they're, they're attaching themselves to the faith of Israel and the practices of Israel. So they, so they already have the concept of kosher and whatever. So when he's talking about food, when he's talking about eating, it's in the context of food. Right. And food is in the context of how food is defined in the scripture. Right. And Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 11, Deuteronomy 14, or is it 16? 16. 16. Defines, uh, food, right? defines what food is according to 
according to God. Indeed. So when it's talking about one may eat meat, one may eat vegetables, it's not saying right. it's 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 saying one may eat meat that's food. Right. Okay. <laughs> Pork, according to the scripture, right. is not right. food for consumption. Right. Okay. Right. So he's not saying you can eat one can eat any kind of meat he wants and one in one can't or what right. if this is all in, in the context of a believing community and it's really in context of, uh, I believe the halakhic term is humrut. That is individual prohibitions that people uh, put on themselves. Because I may say, you know what, I just, you know, um, I know I'm a permitted to drink wine according to the scripture. But for me, I'm just, I'm choosing not to uh, out of a, um, out of some sort of a dedication to Hashem, to, to God. Yeah. And that's what we're talking about here. People had different individual prohibitions they were placing on themselves and he's saying look just because one has this prohibition on himself and one doesn't you know guys it's it's, and, it's okay and, and again this has a lot to do I mean, if, if the bulk of materials in the Mishnah are to be considered at all then this is again a Gentile issue because the issue behind the meats most likely I'm willing to say yes. is was this meat sacrificed to an idol? Mm-hmm. Was this meat killed, prepared by a Gentile? Yeah. Was this meat served to me by a Gentile? Because right. if so, that's not ritually clean. Were you in present of the presence right. of this meat at all times exactly. after after it was slaughtered? Right. If not, I I don't know where it came from. And evidently, those are the that's mm-hmm. the discussions going on in the first century synagogue in Rome. Right. Well, Jonathan, I think you know to 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 just wet Jacob's appetite. No pun intended. Um, just a bit. The idea that we're talking about potentially meat sacrificed to idols and going to Costco today in our own day and buying halal meat that has been potentially sacrificed to idols. I, I'm so glad that we can actually sit and talk about this chapter now. We know what it means. Because it has, it has <laughs> implications in my own Whereas before looking at the Torah as some way to walk, I might as well toss this whole chapter. It has nothing to do with me. Because I can do anything I want. Mm -hmm. God's scripture is is applicable always. Mm -hmm. Um, Neither Shaul nor any Jew of his day would question whether God's appointed times really mattered. Why assume different for kosher laws? Really, that's the way he's juxtaposing the Sabbath, our festivals, Noadim, with food. Which is Deuteronomy 16. Which is, which is 14. You were right. Yeah. Good. Uh, to me, if you just take that for face value, for Peshat, then there's something else going on culturally. There's euphemisms that we're not really catching on, unless, again, you put yourself in the time. Um, in conclusion, I can say, Jacob, thank you for the questions. I hope these really clarify to those around you who, who would consider us as forsaking Messiah, trampling on the blood, being a cult, whatever, what have you, as I hope I've dis- uh, distinguished, rather extinguished, any of those thoughts tonight. Um, any closing comments or, or things I, you'd like I, to say? I say we give Jacob a big round of applause for some Indeed. good questions. Let me, uh, let me close us just to make sure that Jacob really does understand where we're coming. 
We hereby join ourselves to the Master, Yeshua, the Messiah, the Righteous One, who is the bread of life and the true light, the source of eternal salvation for all those who hear Him. Like a branch that remains in a vine, so may we remain in Him, just as He also remains in the Father and the Father in Him, in order that they may remain in us. May the grace of the Master, Yeshua, the Messiah, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit abound to each of us. Amen. 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 Good job. Nice job. Good job. Good job. Good job. Good job.